Uh, if, if you have been following along in uh, our series in Acts, you know that there have been uh, two trials already where people have been dragged before the religious authorities to, uh, to give answer for this teaching that they are proclaiming about Jesus and his death and resurrection as the source of salvation and life. This is uh, the new teaching. This is uh, what they have called up to this point the way. Um, and, uh, and, and so there have been two trials. You'll recall that, that an that a internal struggle emerged in the church and that deacons or something like deacons were appointed to give the church the ability to serve those who had need and also to uh, allow the leadership, the teaching leadership of the church, to continue to teach uninterrupted. But then almost immediately, a man, one of those leaders who was appointed, a man named Stephen, who was also a powerful preacher and a, and a doer of good works and miracles, uh, found himself embroiled in controversy because he was speaking up for the gospel. Uh, and in the midst of defending the gospel, he was then dragged before the religious assembly. So this is the third trial in the book of Acts. Now, I, I lay that context just to let you know we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 7. Uh, this is probably going to be about nine minutes of scripture. Uh, then we are going to pray. I'm going to make like three or four in introductory comments. And then it, it is going to be light speed to the end today. So um, my, my, my mentor used to say, a lot after we got a CD burner in the church, he used to say, uh, get the CD. Uh, and I don't say that a lot because, I don't know, I'm not a rock star. Um, but this may be one Sunday where you'll be like, what? Get the CD. Um, I said it. Let's move. Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. The Bible says that he is full of the Holy Spirit and that his face is shining like an angel, like the messenger of God. He has been charged. It says in Acts 7 verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? <clears throat> and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. 
But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abram, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look and there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and, in the Red, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of the Lord and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken in your word, and we believe that, that by, the, by the power of the Spirit that the heart is convicted and moved. We thank you for this testimony that we've heard. I tremble as we turn to the explanation because there is, in truth, is no one who is sufficient for these things. So I pray, Father, for clarity in speech. I pray uh, for conviction of, of things which I am going to say. And I, and I pray that my brothers and sisters would hold closely to the word this morning and that the offense that may come would be from you and that the solution which is presented would be from you and that the, the fruit of holiness that can result from these words would be from you, but that we would receive it and bear it with dignity and joy and honor. Father, I pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word. Help us to see Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Um, I pick up, I think, almost every single book, and I watch almost every single movie with the same secret, deep hope that there will be a big twist. I think I've proclaimed this to you guys over and over again, that this is, this is the way my brain works. Now, anything I might mention is not particularly an endorsement of any book or any movie, so don't, don't, don't rush out and watch something and say, Keith watches this. 
Um, I'm not affirming. I'm just speaking very generally here. I, I, I want to watch a movie or read a book and near the end have something happen where I'll say, what in the world? Whoa. And it just kind of hits you like, wow. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes movies, the recent ones with um, uh, Robert Downey Jr. have been like this, where you're like, something's going on here. And then at the very end, you're like, I, I, I get it. Uh, the movie with Mel Gibson, a little bit campy, but the movie Maverick was like this. If you've not seen that, it's, it's good if you like westerns with like high-stakes gambling and, and, and conflict. Uh, that's a good movie. It's well casted. Uh, the movie The Usual Suspects ends like this, where, where at the end you're like, what? But you probably don't want to watch that one. Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities is like this. Uh, this book uh, was so well done that at the end I am just like, wow, that is amazing. And, and uh, I think that when an author has the foresight and ability to construct a story like that, the, the goal is that they will take you for a ride. Or, or that, that when you recover from, from the strike, from, from the blow of, of having the, the carpet ripped out from underneath you or being punched from a direction that you didn't expect, you're kind of like, what just happened? They, they can slip in a moral lesson. Uh, they've overturned your expectations, and then they supply you with, with a teaching that leaves you saying, what just happened there? And you keep coming back to it and turning it over and over and over in your mind, saying, okay, I, I, something's happened here. What, what just happened? Okay, three, three statements, four statements before we... We're going we're gonna to hit light speed in just a second. First... There's going to be a lot of sideways lessons today. You're going to hear something and you're going to say, oh, he's going to talk about that. I'm just going to kind of make an application and run away from it because I'm driving towards one main point. Second, uh, I am indebted to the, to the thinking and writing of Thomas Constable on this chapter. Uh, his website, Sonic Light, is excellent if you're looking for Bible commentaries. Um, third, I think I've already said this. This is a one-lane highway today. I have one point. I may make a bunch of points. Um, but I'm not going to probably come back to a lot of them. We are, we are driving fast. Third, I bought a little clock that I put on my pulpit. Do you know what it means when your pastor buys a clock and puts it on his pulpit? Absolutely nothing. Okay. Stephen, the, the, the proto-deacon, one of, one of seven, is taken after defending his faith, and he is falsely charged... Uh, uh, Acts chapter 6 says, for speaking against Moses, for speaking against the temple and the law. So he's on trial before the Sanhedrin. This is the third trial in the book of Acts. The first summed up with a warning, stop preaching in this name. The second with a flogging. The third, Stephen is asked, are these things so? Now you have heard his reply to that, to that question, the question of does he, does he blaspheme Moses, the, the temple and the law of God. Uh, his reply has been called by some commentators a tedious recital of biblical history, uh, and others have called it a skillful proclamation. He begins his testimony this way. He says, brothers, fathers, hear me. He begins with, with terms of respect, but he is offering testimony in court. He, he begins in verse 2 by, by speaking of the God of glory. 
Now, remember in chapter 6, verse 10, that it says that, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And, and verse 15 of chapter 6 says that he is like an angel, like a, a messenger of God. They see his face that way. This is, now, like in a movie, you have been drawn to these two points. It's like, you know, the, the guy putting the gun in his pocket that nobody else sees except the whole audience sees it. And you're like, ah, something's happening here. So, so, so the writer has, has pointed something out to us. Stephen takes up his defense by saying in, in verses 2 through 8, he's, he's speaking of Abraham. He's saying, you think I, you say I blaspheme God. Okay, let, let's, let's talk about that. So he, he starts by, by discussing Abraham. Remember that, that Stephen is a Hellenist. He is from off the land. They are accusing him of being critical of their ways, of, of Jewish ways, of, of temple ways, of Moses' ways. And this is what Stephen says. He says, God appeared to Abraham, but he appeared to him in Haran, which is far from here, far from this land. He says, God appeared to Abraham, one of our fathers. And God called Abraham to do a strange thing, something unheard of. He, he told him to leave where he had come from and to go to a land he would, he would show him. This, this had not been written in any books. This is not a commandment. It's not a law. It's, it's, not, it's not something that's revealed, that, that can be practiced. This is a brand new thing for Abraham, and he went with it. He followed it. There's, a, there's an implied rebuke here from Stephen. Should, should, the, should the leaders not do the same thing? Should they not follow beyond their comfort zone? For us today, should not we do the same thing? We, we judge so often the preaching of the word by our culture, or we judge the preaching of the word by the one who's preaching it. We say, you know, that person's younger than me, or, you know, he's not using enough funny illustrations. How could he possibly be, be telling the truth? I'm not going to listen to him. He's not, you know, he, he's just not connecting. I'm just not into it. Um, I'm not being fed, because what's being said is not, uh, is, is not in line with what we want to hear. Uh, what, I, what I'm hearing is uh, doesn't jive with previous beliefs. It it's, it's, disagrees with what my study Bible says, or uh, my favorite pastor on the radio said something different. I'll look up what he says, and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll disregard this. Abraham did something new and uncomfortable. He trusted. Notice that it says in, in verse 4, uh, 5, and 6, it says that it did not look like he was going to inherit what he was promised. In fact, Abraham looked like a total failure. He was going to go spend... 400 years, he and his descendants, in a, in a nation that would oppress them. In verse 7, Stephen points out that God promised to judge the nation that opposed this precious people, the people of God. I wonder how many of them at that point, when he points out what's, what he says in verse 7, I will judge the nation that they serve. How many of them glanced at Gamaliel, the member who in Acts 5.39 had said, stop trying to crush this movement because if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's what happened in Egypt. They opposed God and God judged Egypt. The life of the church at this point looked strange. The life of Abraham looked strange. The life of Jesus, whom Stephen is defending, also looked strange, but it was of God. Does, does Stephen blaspheme God? The conclusion would be, would be no. 
that, that God often does strange and new things. He switches up his testimony at this point. He goes in a different direction. He's not just rambling. He's, he's got a point and purpose. In 9 through 16, he's now going to turn to Joseph. So, so he says in verse 9 that Joseph was not loved by his brothers, and he was sold as a slave. Interesting, isn't it? Wasn't somebody else sold as a slave recently? Sold for a price? God was with Joseph, though, even though he was sold as a slave with this great indignity. God rescued Joseph from the pit and placed him over all. Stephen connects with his audience. He, he, he expresses solidarity with them by saying that our fathers sold Joseph. He, they, they, they found themselves hungry after that and in famine. Judgment came upon them because they had mistreated Joseph, one who was loved of God, and they found themselves by God's providence at the feet of Joseph repenting. Notice again in verse 12 that connection there. Our fathers. He connects again with the people. Verse 13. They did not know Joseph the first time, but the second time he revealed himself to them, and they repented. Zechariah 12.10 speaks similar words in prophecy. It says this, I will, pour out on my, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The way that Israel had treated Joseph in the past was very similar to the way that they had treated Jesus in the recent past, and the reaction would be similar. I believe that's what Stephen is, is pointing out here. Again, in 15 and 16, he speaks of our fathers. They, they came up out of the land, and they buried Joseph with Abraham, where he had been buried on the land. They buried him it says, in Shechem. Interestingly, Shechem is where the well was where Jesus had had a conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman. And the Jews, we know, if we've read the book of John, hated Samaritans. What is his point here? God spoke to Abraham in Haran. He used Joseph in Egypt and Abram and Joseph are buried in the hated place Shechem, in Samaritan territory. Stephen is pointing out that God is at work everywhere, not just in a temple, not just on this particular scrap of ground. Wherever we go, wherever Christians go to proclaim the gospel, which is the message by uh, the only message by which men and women and children, all beings who have ever existed, can be saved. Wherever we go, God is there first in his working. This is the message that gets Jesus in such trouble in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is preaching a sermon, and he says, Were there no widows in Israel when there was a famine? And yet Elijah was sent to none of those widows, but only to the widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside of the land, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian Gentile, 
God's not only at work on the land, in the temple. You say, I blaspheme Moses, Stephen says, and the law. Now he switches up to Moses here. He goes back. He's like, okay, I'm too far. I'm, I'm off the land. They're burying Joseph. We need to go back. Let's go back to, to Moses. Uh, remember, Moses was born under Egyptian oppression. Our fathers, he says, were oppressed by, by Egypt. Pharaoh tried to kill our children and to exterminate us, and he killed many. But some, some slipped through his fingers, and one was raised in Pharaoh's court by his daughter. That's the providence and plan of God. Now they are under Roman rule. And, and from the time of the fall, all humanity has been under sin's rule. Hadn't one recently been born? Hadn't the king, Herod, tried to murder him? Hadn't he escaped to Egypt in the night? And did not judgment come upon that king as judgment came upon Pharaoh. Fast forward to verse 23. It says that Moses attempted to deliver the people, but the people were offended by him and rejected him. They rejected Jesus as well, didn't they? The people were offended by his teaching. They refused to follow. Moses was raised in Egypt, not on the land, and he did mighty works of God. Is God bound to a singular place? Does God only work in a temple? When we come to church on Sunday morning, do we come here because God is only here? Now, let me just let me say something just for a minute. There are some people, one of my college roommates used to say, you know what, I go out on Sunday mornings and I worship God in the forest. And I would be like, you never go out on Sunday mornings. You sleep in. But let's just talk about that, I worship God in the forest. Do you, do you really? Stop it. We worship in a church setting as God commanded, but we don't say for a second that God only works here in this place. That somehow he lives in the walls or something or pervades the atmosphere and we absorb from him. No, he is everywhere working all the time. Moses attempts to deliver the people. The people reject him. He flees to Midian. And there God appears to Moses in a bush and says, I am who I am. He says, I'm the God of your fathers. He reveals the most intimate name of himself. This, this uh, name of only consonants with, with no vowels, which we pronounce Yahweh. He tells Moses his most personal name far from the land. Moses goes back with this message and delivers the people from Egypt and brings them to the border of the promised land. Jesus, too, was brought out of Egypt. He, too, was baptized. They were all baptized, by the way. Check 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Jesus, like Moses, heard an audible voice from heaven. And he, too, was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Moses spent time on the mountain speaking to God for 40 days. What did the fathers do? They were in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, uh, Stephen points out that our fathers were in the wilderness. They refused to heed Moses. They rejected his leadership. They feared that Moses would destroy them, and they attempted to turn back and head back to Egypt. They rejected Moses. They rejected Jesus, too. 
John 11, 47 through 48 speaks of this deliberative body, this governmental institution who, it says in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And they determine then that for the sake of the nation, Jesus must die. There would be, Moses points out, an ultimate prophet. Verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Peter, speaking in Acts chapter 3, quotes this exact passage, but then said, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. The people refused to follow Moses, and the people then turned to Egypt, and if not Egypt, then idols. Perhaps this is what the leadership of the Jewish nation was doing right then. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back under oppressive religion. John 1 verse 10 says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is Stephen saying to the crowd here? He's saying, you say that you defend the law by insisting on the finality of the law and the temple, but you ignore the end result of the law and you ignore the purpose of the temple. You remain in bondage to these institutions instead of enjoying gospel freedom. The very worst possible thing for people is to catch a little bit of religion, but not the finality or fullness of it. Jesus points this out in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits. It goes and throws a house party, more evil than itself. And they enter it and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. My brothers and sisters, the unchristian Christian, the, the religious person is the worst. Because they come to church, they hear the gospel, they walk forward, they say, I want to be saved. How do I do it? I pray this prayer. And then they say, oh, okay, I'll throw away, um, I'll throw away my cigarettes and my liquor and my ACDC albums. And I'll, I'll, I'll start putting Christian bumper stickers on my car. And nothing of the heart changes. And they are just as lost, but now they've been immunized from the gospel. The scripture says that the fathers in the land or in the wilderness were not cured of their spirit of idolatry, what they had picked up in Egypt, despite cleansings and prophets. They, they carried their idolatry into the land from the wilderness. And so judgment came upon them. They were ripped off of the land. The north was destroyed by Assyria, and then the south, several hundred years later, by Babylon. It had happened in the past. Stephen 
is alluding, perhaps, to what Jesus has prophesied in Matthew 24. It says that Jesus left the temple and was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, and he said, you see all of these, you see all this stuff? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Clinging to its idolatry, Israel was heading back to the wilderness. In AD 70, the Romans would come and destroy Jerusalem. Let me just make one quick statement about what Romans 11 teaches us about Israel, because politically maybe you're wondering, what's our connection to Israel today? Uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 32 says that Israel are counted enemies of Christians because of their opposition to the gospel, but they are the beloved people of God, and therefore this is the way we ought to think of them because of God's promises to Abraham. They are our enemies, but we are their friends. He also says in Romans 11 verse 15 that a future awakening of Israel will come, and I believe, based on what he says in verse 15, this will mean life from the dead, the resurrection. Okay, we're, we're, we're getting there, okay? Eleven sons of Jacob reject Joseph. Twelve tribes reject Moses. He switches it up again. You say, I blaspheme the temple. So we switch up to the temple now. He says, our fathers, again, there's that connection, had the tabernacle, right? They call it the tent of witness. The, the witness and testimony of what God had done drawing them out of Egypt, walking them through the wilderness, the good promises of God. Our fathers had the tabernacle. Moses built it. Joshua, verse 45, our fathers brought it up into the land. It even stood until David's day. David has this big idea to build a temple, and God would not let him build it. Solomon built it. I love this line I encountered in a commentary this week. Stephen implies that the temple was a royal whim tolerated of God. Oh, I thought about that for a while. It's good stuff. God may have made his presence there and caused his name to dwell in the temple, and it was, in fact, a holy place and a symbol of God's presence on earth, but God does not merely dwell there. 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon's words at the inauguration or consecration of the temple, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon is saying, God, you can't fit in this place. This isn't just going to be your house. Your presence may be here, but you are too big to, to, to fit, to be confined here. The prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my, my hand make all these things? You're going to build a house for me out of stuff that I made? No way. Now, we don't know it, perhaps, because we don't know these passages as well as Stephen does. But the very next verse, after God says, Did not my hand make all these things? Isaiah 66, verse 2 says this, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Jesus had come as the word of God. He had come 
in fullness as the ultimate prophet, as the summation of all things, as the fulfillment of the temple, as the final sacrifice of which all the sacrifices had had pointed to. And he lived and died to take all sin upon himself that whoever believes in him would be set free from all of their sins and would know that their relationship with God was settled, that they were purified, that they were cleansed, and that they were right with God. And there would be no question. And those who opposed this, who resisted, were opposing what God was doing. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 12, 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice comes from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world to be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. God is everywhere at work drawing people to Jesus. John 4, 21. Jesus says this to the Samaritan woman when she asks, do we worship God here on, on the mountain, on Mount Gerizim, or do we worship God there uh, in, in, in Jerusalem, on, on that mountain? Where do we worship God? This is what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. All people drawn to the one God through the one Savior. Man had sinned and fallen out of relationship with God in the garden temple, but God reestablished his connection with people in the tabernacle, his, his presence among people. And then they moved it to the temple. And then the Lord himself in the Gospels comes into his holy temple. He reveals in John 2 that he himself is the temple, telling them, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple veil was rent when Jesus went to the cross. We learn in the New Testament that we, are our, our bodies, we are the temple because the Spirit dwells in us. And the church in Ephesians is the cosmic temple and dwelling place of God. Stephen, now full of his he has, he has made his whole speech. He now reacts with anger. God's revelation and true spiritual authority are not confined to this singular place, this temple, this law, these traditions. God is going everywhere. And so you notice a change in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Notice the change here in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? At this point, I think the, the story twists. The defense is clear. He is not defending himself, but his faith, and he is indicting them. They are on trial, not he. They had indicted him, but he has been trying them. This is one of these scarlet letter moments, if you've not read that book, where guilt is reveals, re revealed and the roles are reversed. They are on trial. They were the 11 brothers. 
They are the rabble-rousers in the wilderness. They, the twelfth apostle who sold Jesus. No, even worse. Verse 52 and 53 say that they had tried him and put to death the righteous one, the, the prince of glory. They tried him and sentenced to death. They missed the promise of the Messiah. They missed the point of the law. The law, Stephen says, had been delivered by angels. But Luke has pointed out that Stephen was sitting here as an angel. The angel, perhaps even symbolizing the angel of the Lord. Full, 755 says, full of the Holy Spirit. And they were sitting in judgment, rejecting him in anger. The faithful always come with the message. Abram, Joseph, Moses, Isaiah, Jesus, the fulfillment of all things. And now Stephen had come with the word and they rejected it. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They know this echo. They've heard this before in their law, in their books that they love. Second Chronicles 36, 15. We are drawn to a close. Just stick, stick with it here. This is what 2 Chronicles 36, 15 says. As the nation has, has had wicked kings and judgment is coming, it says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. The word messenger in the New Testament is the word that we translate angel. If they're bright and sparkly, they're supernatural. If they're just regular people, they're, they're people. But they're messengers of God. God sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So how is it with you this morning? I question my own dedication and commitment as I look back at this week? How often do we hear the word of God speak in a sermon or in our reading of God's word or in a song or in a comment from a believing friend and we ignore it and continue our idolatrous rebellion with our godless movie watching or our drinking or our sexual immorality or our angry and God-denying politics or our casual theft or our routine covetousness or our disrespect to our parents, our profanity, our abuse of our body with drugs or food, our murderous gossip, our approval of what's evil, our toying with false doctrine or our failure to defend the glory of God in sound doctrine. How often do we fail to say yes to the good of God and no to our flesh or to the world? They, this audience, had failed to live this way. They were, they were sitting in judgment of God's word as the religious authorities and the word of God was not penetrating them. Hebrews 12, 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. They had failed to recognize God and to honor him, though he had spoken. They departed from God's values to secondary issues. Instead of seeing the gospel, they took a left turn at obey God's law. 
and kept on driving, and a one-degree course change took them a thousand miles off course. They rejected God's anointed servants, failing to see that all of his servants are humbled before they are exalted. The scripture says that they were enraged. They ground their teeth together, and in a spontaneous act of mob violence in reaction to a speech, they storm Stephen. They, they drag him out of the city and begin to throw rocks at him. Stephen has a vision like that of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, or John, of the Lord at the right hand of God, staring there, standing there to receive him, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. He cries to the Lord for deliverance. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, in the same spirit that he has testified, he, he was faithful and he delivered judgment. It was to them to decide how they would react to hearing this news. He called on the Lord to forgive them. Verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He had kept his testimony. He had maintained a right spirit. He had delivered the word. Whether they rejected it or received it was on them. How is it with you today? Have you received God's word? Do you receive it when it comes or do you dismiss it and place your faith in religion and your own thinking and not in the gospel? Let's pray as we close. Father God, I pray my brothers and sisters have been well served and I pray that as we have heard your word and as we react to it, I pray that we would see what is going on in the scriptures, Lord. This is not a set of rules to be obeyed to earn salvation. Salvation is received and it humbles us. We must get on our face before you. We must repent of our sins and our wrongdoing and not be stiff-necked and rebellious towards your word as it comes, no matter who the messenger, no matter whether he looks like a success or a failure, whether he fits our mold and image of, of who the messenger of God should be or whether he is the exact opposite of that in our eyes. If it's our friend whose sins we know rebuking us, may we not reject you who is speaking through him or her. The song on the radio that is calling us to change may be your providential gift to us. That sermon that we hear, that Bible study that we attend, that snippet of, of, of devotional that we pick up that cuts to the heart. May we not be like those who killed the prophets rejecting you. May we fall on our face with torn repentant hearts saying we are guilty thank you for your grace Lord Jesus cleanse me and may we rise confident that Christ has covered us from our sins may we not miss the glory and the goodness of the gospel that we cannot earn it we can do nothing to obtain it apart from belief may we not lose it to secondary issues temples traditions, places, whatever religion we may invent to exalt against you. We thank you for your grace, Father. I thank you for the rebuke to myself this morning for the way that I live. I pray you would shape 
my heart and my, the heart of my brothers and sisters. May we worship you and you alone for what you've done. May we give all glory and honor to Jesus who saves us. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. As we close.